First Samuel chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one. And some of the seats in front of you you can use this morning. If you don't own a Bible, you can also take that home as our gift to you. First Samuel chapter 14. Looking at verses 1 through 23. We make it our practice here at Hope to preach through entire books of the Bible. From cover to cover, we do that because we want we want everybody to have the whole counsel of God. We want to hear everything that God has to say to us. We don't want to pick and choose. If you, if you just relied on me, I would probably pick the easiest passages and I'd skip the hard ones. So that's why we preach through the whole Bible, because it's all for us. It's all necessary, and it's all sufficient for us to lead a godly life. It's what we need to grow as believers. So we're, we're continuing our way through 1 Samuel. And how we approach the Old Testament as believers in Christ, knowing that Jesus isn't, uh, his incarnation doesn't come to the New Testament, but the Old Testament we read because we believe the Old Testament points to him. It, it points forward to the coming Christ. We, it points forward to the coming king. And so in First Samuel, it's all about kingship. It's all about the beginning of Israel's monarchy. Samuel was the prophet and judge that God called to be the, the, the picker of the kings, to anoint the kings. And so the first king that is chosen by God is Saul. And we see that he's not going to reign for very long. He's not, he's not the king he's, that goes after God's heart. And so in chapters 13 and 14 and 15 are really the beginning and end of Saul's reign. It doesn't, end, it doesn't begin well, and it ends fairly quickly. And then we'll pick up on Jonathan, or we'll pick up on uh, David in chapter 16. So as we begin um, looking at this, you know, 13, 14, and 15 are pretty sobering chapters. Uh, they're not successful chapters, although we do see a successful defeat of the Philistines um, by, namely, Jonathan and God himself, ultimately. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, going through verse 23. We stand out of respect for God and his word. This is God's word. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know what Jonathan, that Jonathan had gone. And within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Now Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to them, to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, 
Then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone out from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. The ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. And so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. This is God's word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you so badly. We need your word so badly. I need it. Would you be with me as I bring this message to your people? And as I speak... Would you, Father, have a word for them? Would they hear from you, most importantly? Would I hear from you? I need you. So it would encourage us all, Father. May the words of my mouth, meditations of all of our hearts together, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When you think of courage, what comes to mind? What is courage? Is there a person that comes to mind? Is there an event, either in your life or in history, that comes to mind? If I had to define courage, I would, I would say it's this. It's being willing to take on risk or danger to yourself to gain something of great value or to protect something of great value. It's taking on that risk or danger. We've seen many acts of heroism and courage throughout our lives, our history. But when we think about courage, we shouldn't confuse it with foolishness, right? Foolishness. Now, for example, um, if I was to take all the money out of our savings account and uh, take all of my retirement out and go down to that new casino down in Portsmouth and um, put it all on red at the roulette table, and double everything, and, and win, and, and double all our money, and come back to my wife and say, honey, look what I did. I, I doubled all of our savings. 
would she say to me, you are so courageous. <laughs> You're so wise and courageous to do that. No, you know, she's never slapped me, but she might slap me that day. I might get slapped. That's foolishness, right? That, so what that is, is seeking to gain something by putting what you value at risk. Right? Not taking on, uh, not, not putting yourself in danger. Well, in that case I was, but it's, it's, it's putting what you value right, at great risk, what you're trying to save. But what is, let's think about that, courage. And is faith courageous? Is faith courageous? Many in our culture, people who aren't Christians, atheists perhaps, would say, no, faith is not courageous. Faith is foolish. Being courageous in your faith is, is foolish, they would say. And that's because you don't value what faith is in, what, what you place your faith in. That really is what matters. What are you trusting in? If what you trust in, if what you are putting your faith in is most valuable to you, then that is courageous. That is courageous. If God is most valuable to you, then whatever you do in faith, to put yourself at risk, to love others, to, to, to give Him glory, that is courageous. That is valuable. So this morning, we're going to compare two figures in our story, and it's a father and his son, Saul and his son, Jonathan. And they both embody two different ways of approaching the current challenges that they're experiencing, which is this uh, occupation of the Philistine army against Israel. Jonathan embodies faith, while his father, the king, embodies fear. We're going to examine how faith and fear affect how they're approaching this problem and how they view God. And so first we're going to look at the faith of Jonathan. Secondly, the fear of Saul. And then thirdly, we're going to examine what does this mean, the fear of God. What does that mean? And how is it the beginning of wisdom for us? So first let's look at the faith of Jonathan. What does he do? So in the chapters that we've read so far in 1 Samuel, the Philistine army has has approached Israel. They have taken over. They are occupying the land. Their army is a lot bigger, a lot stronger, and Israel currently is hiding, mostly hiding in caves in the hills. But what is Jonathan doing? So it says, verse 1, One day Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So he comes up with this plan. I'm going to go over to the Philistine garrison. So there's an outpost. Uh, so it's not the main, main army, the main camp. It's an outpost, and it's in the hills, in the mountains. And he said, I'm going to go over there. You come with me. So the first thing we learn about the nature of faith, of Jonathan's faith, is that it's courageous. Courageous. One definition of courage is the ability to do something that frightens you. It's willing to uh, have strength in the face of pain or grief. And so he's got this daring plan. Let's look at the plan. We're going to skip down to uh, verse 4 through 6. Within the passes, so, so he, he comes up with this plan. He's going to go toward this garrison. And this, in the passes by which he's going to go over, it says there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other. So what it's saying is he has to go through this pass and and go up this, basically a cliff, climb the cliff, and then down on the other side to get to this outpost. And he says in verse 6, 
to his uh, armor bearer, come let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. And then he says, armor bearer in verse 7 says, let's do that. I'm with you. And then his plan is this, verse 8. We're going to cross over to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So he's saying, me and you, we're going to go it alone. I'm not going to tell my father about this because he is not doing anything. I'm going to be courageous and I'm going to attack this outpost with you. And I've got this sign. If they say, um, come up to us, then we're going to come up to them and, and take, take them. So that's his plan. So that's courageous, right? That is courageous to go, to go it alone with one other guy to attack the Philistines. Faith is courageous. But it also takes action, doesn't it? Faith takes action. It doesn't sit back and wait for something to happen. It acts. It initiates. But notice it's not impulsive. It's not an impulsive act. He has a plan. He's thought this out. He, he initiated this plan, and he's acting. And one of the reasons he's acting is because his father is, is acting out of fear. His father's not doing anything. They're just sitting back waiting. So it takes action. It initiates. But it also believes, faith believes, that God can do anything. Look at verse 6 again with me. This is what he says to his armor bearer. Come, let us go over there. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You see, Jonathan believed God could do anything. Jonathan had good doctrine, didn't he? Nothing can hinder God. You see how his his good doctrine, his belief in, in what God was like helped him act out of faith. Doctrine, understanding who God is, is vital to faith. Nothing can hinder God, he said. He believed in God and what he could do. And so faith is, you might be thinking, oh, that just means you're, you're optimistic. You always had this sort of optimistic, positive view of life. And that's not, that's not what I'm saying. Faith is actually more than optimism. One commentator says, faith can arise even when there is no reason for optimism. When no reason for optimism exists, when, when things are really, really dark, and the darkest of dark, you can trust in God that he sees when you cannot. It's more than just optimism. Faith has imagination. Faith has an imagination about it. In the face of opposition, in the face of impossibilities, it imagines new hopes, new realities, and dreams. It was in the face of his father's lack of faith. It was in the face of his father's disobedience, Saul's disobedience, that he had, this, he had this idea, that he had this imagination that, that he could take this outpost with his armor bearer. So what does faith look like in your life this morning? Is God calling you to do something uncomfortable? Has he been calling you to do something uncomfortable? That's not easy. What is out of your comfort zone that would be faithful? 
One of the things I think of is, is, that is uh, hard, difficult, is, is husbands and fathers leading your families spiritually. I think our natural bent is to lead our families financially, to take care of everything we need physically, which is important, materially, but leading spiritually is difficult. It can be uncomfortable. David Wells is a theologian, writes that um, secularization, so this idea of religion sort of falling away in our culture, he says that doesn't mean, secularization does not mean that all religion and spirituality must wither away. It simply means that all religion and spirituality need to be kept private. You could argue that a lot of just the secularism in our world, dropping away of religion, people not wanting to talk about it, actually began to happen at the dinner table. It actually began to happen in the living room. When we instead chose to entertain ourselves with TV and spend that, that be the, the time that we, we have as a family instead of any talk of spirituality, any talk of God in our families, any talk of reading the, or reading the scriptures together. When that vacates the family life, it makes sense that it would also vacate public life, wouldn't it? Everything became private when things become secular. So maybe a difficult thing, an uncomfortable thing if you're a husband or father is opening up the Bible and reading it with your, with your kids and your wife. I remember um, I didn't really grow up in a, a Christian home. We were nominal Christians, but my father, he, he became a believer later in life. And um, he struggled with depression and other things. But I remember when he wanted to start doing Bible reading together as a family. It was, I remember it so clearly because we'd never done it before. And so it really stood out that he wanted to do this. But it made a huge impact on me, though. You just even the few times that we did it, um, that he wanted the Word of God to become central in our family, that it wasn't a private thing to be kept just to yourself, but to be shared and to be modeled for other people. Basic steps like that, basic steps of obedience can take courage, can it? It can take courage. And we need that courage. Think about other issues you might be struggling with today. Reconciling with a family member who you haven't spoken to in years. That takes courage. That takes courage. Have you ever had a phone call that you knew you had to make this coming week and you really didn't want to make that phone call? You really didn't want to talk to that person. It takes courage to show them that you love them. How about showing hospitality to a, a new person at church? Right? Reaching out of your comfort zone, talking to someone you don't know. How about coming to a new church for the first time? It takes courage. If that's you today, we welcome you. But don't forget that faithfulness has friends. Faithfulness has friends. Notice that Jonathan didn't go it alone. He didn't go it alone. He had a trusted and reliable brother-in-arms. He had to do this with somebody, this venture. And we need that too. If you're going to be faithful in the Christian life, you need a brother or sister in arms. So who is that for you this morning? You need to go seek that person out. Verse 7, it says, And his armor bearer said to him after hearing the plan, Jonathan, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. 
And hear this. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. Do you have someone in your life who says that to you? I'm with you, heart and soul. I'll be with you. I'll walk with you through this. One of the the best World War II shows that I've ever seen is Band of Brothers. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, it's written, it's, it's based on a book, and it's about these, this company uh, in World War II um, who fought together. And they would often, and the show at least, they'll interview the actual men who were in that, that group. And in the book, it talks about how they were bonded together in the midst of war. And it says they, they also found in combat the closest brotherhood they ever knew. They found selflessness. They found they could love the other guy in their foxhole more than themselves. They found that in war, men who loved life would give their lives for them. Men who loved life would give their lives for them. But notice what it said right before that. They found in war it does that. War binds us together. You need someone to go to war with. You can't go it alone. We need brothers and sisters, to be our armor bearer. And notice also the blessings that this faith of Jonathan produces. That this act of faith produced terror and confusion in their enemies. And it does the same for our enemies. Look at verse 15. This is a result of their exploit of this garrison. It says, There was a panic in the Philistine camp, in the field. And among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. So we actually see a combination of what Jonathan did and what God is doing. The earth is actually quaking. He is throwing them into a panic as well. But it's all based on this act of faith. Triggers this. We need to remember that our enemy, Satan, hates it when we act in courageous faith. When we show faith, when we act courageously, it is a shot against our enemy. And this confusion, throwing our enemies into confusion, was a promise from Deuteronomy 7. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And the last thing we learn about this this faith of Jonathan is that acts of faith comfort and encourage God's people. Look at verse 22. This is the the end result. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. Do you see how Jonathan's faith, his act of faith, encouraged everyone else to be bold and to go after the Philistines? Faithfulness in one person very often leads to faithfulness in other people. When you step up and act faithfully and, and, and act courageously as a believer, often other people see that and they want to follow it. Faith takes courage and it encourages those around it. And just as a word of encouragement, young people, young Christians, desperately need to see faithfulness modeled to them. That's why we love, I love to see children in worship in the worship service. That's why we don't have a separate worship service for our children because our children need to see the faithfulness of their parents and grandparents in the worship service, in the sanctuary. That Very often, 
Faithfulness is not taught. It's caught. It's modeled. You have to see it. You have to see it to ultimately practice it. So be encouraged that you are, if you're here today, if you're worshiping, you are a model to all the young believers in this room. So that's what we we learn about the faith of Jonathan. How about the other side? How about the fear of Saul? What do we see? Well, if you notice right away in verse 2, Saul's just hanging out. He's just staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of Migron. Saul's acting cowardly, essentially. What is a coward? A coward is a person who lacks the courage to do or endure dangerous or unpleasant things. He's got no motivation. If you remember the last chapter, his kingship has now been revoked because of his disobedience, because he decided to offer the sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel. So it was announced to him that his kingship will no longer reign. I'm sure he's depressed, and he's just sitting there, not trying to save his people, not trying to come up with a plan. He's cowardly. So fear is often that way. When we're fearful, it means we're also sometimes cowardly. We don't want to endure anything unpleasant or dangerous but it also takes cover, right? If, if, if faith takes action, fear often takes cover. Self-protection rules the person who is fearful. All we want to do is maintain the status quo and be safe and protected. Everything we do is about our personal safety. It takes cover. And we Americans, we have to be really careful about this because this is the message we hear all around us in advertising and commercialism in the society we live in we prize safety we prize comfort we prize security above everything else don't we that's not biblical to center your lives around these things to have these be the ultimate idols gods that you serve is not biblical it's not what a christian ought to do it's not courageous it's not faithful. It's fearful. It's fearful. So fear is cowardly. It takes cover, but it also, it doesn't believe God can do all things. It believes God can do some things. Look at the way Saul is acting towards God. It always second guesses God. If you notice, he has a priest. He he no longer has Samuel, but he has a different priest. Who is that? It says in verse 3, including Ahijah, the son of this man called Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. If you remember in earlier chapters, Eli was not a good priest. His sons actually uh, were horrible priests, and they were killed by God. And Ichabod actually means, where is the glory of God? The, the glory has departed. So that is, that is the priest that he has this this priest that line that's been that will be rejected eventually but so he has this priest but he's not consulting the priest he's not looking for to to this priest for what is god's word saying to me he's not consulting god even though he has god's priest and we also see something else in verse 17 he he counts the people he does this because it says that he wants to see who's gone out from us but often when you count the people it's what you're doing is not trusting in the Lord, you're trusting in numbers. So he's second-guessing God. He's not asking God for help via the priest. He's second-guessing him by counting the people. But he's doing one other thing in verse 18. 
He said, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people. Do you remember the story of the ark in earlier chapters when the Philistines took the ark because Israel had brought it into battle thinking that if they bring the ark, God surely will bless them to manipulate God, to make God act through the superstition. He's doing the same thing. He's repeating the same error. He's like, where is the ark? We need the ark to help us here. He's falling back into manipulation of God. He believes God can do not all things, like Jonathan says, but some things. So I want you to think about how do you fall into times of fear? What do you do in your life that, that reveals what you're afraid of? What are you afraid of? What causes you fear? What causes you to fall, to run from difficult things? Why do you run from difficult things? Why do you not want to endure things? Have you forgotten, maybe, what's most valuable? In what situations would you say you take cover? That you seek ultimate protection and that's, that's how you want to live your life? Is it because you only think about yourself? And what leads you to believe that God can only do some things, but not all things? Are we focused on our own circumstances? You see, brothers and sisters, fear like that is a form of slavery. You will either serve fear for the rest of your life, or you will need to break free from it. Perhaps you're thinking, well, fear isn't very, it's not a significant deal with me, I'm, I'm, it's not a big issue, I'm good. Well, let's ask a few diagnostic questions. Assess your spiritual life. Are you living in a constant state of spiritual unrest? Where you just don't feel at rest spiritually? Are you haunted by by personal insecurity? Do you wonder where God is and what in the world he's doing? Ever thought that? Are you living self-protectively saying, yeah, that sin I committed, that only happened once. It won't happen to me again. Are you afraid to admit failure? Do you share with no one the struggles of faith that you have? Do you fail to be candid and honest and decisive because you're afraid of what will happen to you? Have you found ways of escape, ways of coping that don't include preaching the gospel to yourself? Those are all good questions to ask yourself if you're struggling with this kind of fear. You see, we need to turn our sinful fear into godly fear. You see, fearing people and fearing life is a debilitating way to live in which you live for the praise of others. Or you crumble even under the slightest criticism. As author Ed Welch puts it, it's when people are big and God is small. How do we combat that? How do we combat that kind of fear? But it's, it's important to remember that fear is actually a good thing. That in and of itself, fear was given to us by a good God. Think about it. It depends on what we're fearing. <clears throat> One time I was camping near Lexington, where a place where I used to go up all the time uh, as a kid in Goshen Pass, and we were camping up over by the river, Maury River, 
and camping right outside of the cabin. And there are these big pine trees all, all throughout that area. And we had our tent all set up. And it's early morning, 5.30 or so in the morning. And I, we hear this kind of crackling sound, like splitting noise. And, um, and the next thing I hear is my uncle screaming, Get out of the tent! Get out of the tent! He's in the cabin telling us this. Because what he sees is a big pine tree starting to fall on top of our tent. So I hear the cracking, I hear the splintering, I hear him yell, and I run out in my underwear, out of the tent, because I was fearful. You see, that's a good form of fear. It's a good form of fear because it saves your life. Another example Hannah was telling me this morning of a fear she had. She, we were living in California, and she was going on a run and in our neighborhood, and there were hills uh, where we lived, and she went over the hill past our house, and then hit a cul-de-sac and was coming back, and there was a dog. Uh, it looked like a dog behind a fence, I believe, and then uh, as she's passing the dog, he's just barking, barking, barking. She's really glad he's not you know, out of the fence. And then she turns around, and somehow he is out of the fence. And he's starting to running, running at her. And she said this is the fastest she's ever run in her life to get away from this dog. She goes over the hill. This is probably the best workout, right, she's ever had. And then uh, over the hill, back toward our house, and she looked back, and the dog turned around. Another good type of fear, right? Because it saved her life, maybe. At least from getting bit. You see, fear can be an acknowledgement of true power and strength. The Bible calls this the fear of God. And so what we need to do as believers is, is exchange that fear of the world and man for fear of God. Kevin DeYoung says, This is a faith issue which takes a lot of fight. We will not fear God more than people unless we know the truth about God and people. Do you believe that pleasing God is more important and more satisfying than pleasing people? Do you believe that God is the only one to whom you will give an account at the end of the age? I repeat that. That's such an important question. Do you believe that God is the only one to whom you will give an account at the end of the age. Do you believe that God has forgiven all your sins at the cost of His Son's blood, that Jesus needs none of your self-abuse to make Him suffer enough and none of your feelings of perpetual misery to make Him loving enough? Do you believe that fearing God, keeping His commandments, and living to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant, is the most freeing life you can live. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is God and no one else? Do you believe that if God ain't happy, it don't matter who likes you, your political positions, or your PhD? Even if you just recently got a PhD, Dale, or my MDiv, or whatever degree you have. If God isn't happy, it doesn't matter. But hear this, if God is pleased with you, if he's pleased with you, that there isn't a hell on earth or a hell to come that can take his smile away from you. So will you and I, with all our worry and our pride and our self-righteousness, have enough faith to exchange fear for fear? The fear of the world with fear of God. And that leads me to my third point, that fear... This is the kind of fear we need, and it's a fear that leads to wisdom. 
that Jonathan's faith, what, what made it different, was that it was built upon conviction. And what was his conviction? Jonathan knew God could do anything. Again, let me read verse 6. It's, it's the most important verse in this passage. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord. He was convicted about that. And that's what drove him to this courageous act of faith. And notice what he says. He says, it may be. You could also say, perhaps, maybe, the Lord will work for us. He's not required to, but maybe he will. But either way, I'm going to trust in him. It reminds me so much of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they're standing before the king, getting ready to be tossed into the fiery furnace, what do they say? Daniel chapter 3, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to save us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, we are not going to bow down to you. You see how it, they left God up to his own freedom? They didn't demand God act a certain way about their lives. They trusted enough in him, in God, that he would do what's ultimately right. There's no manipulation in that kind of faith. It's only this optimistic faith and conviction that God can do anything. So, brother and sister, it's not about the amount of faith you have. It's about what your faith is in. We say this, as Reformed believers, one of the solas of the Reformation, faith alone in Christ alone. That faith alone is the instrument that gets us to the object of saving faith, which is Christ alone. Christ is the one who saves. Faith is the mere instrument that gets us there. It's not about the amount, how great or less your faith is. It's what are you leaning on? What are you trusting in? I love that verse from Hebrews 11 about faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You can't see it. Right? You can't see your way forward, but you know the one you trust in. You know his promises are sure. One of the best examples of that in the Gospels, beautiful illustration of faith is when Peter sees, and the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, Matthew 14, and I'll just read it from verse 28 through 32, Matthew 14. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you out there on the water, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus amazingly said, come. So Peter gets out of the boat and steps a toe right out on the water, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, And he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. And what did he say? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And they got into the boat, and the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, You, truly you, Jesus, are the Son of God. So I always ask, What did Peter, where was he struggling? What did he do? What was he looking at? Look back at verse 30. When he saw the wind, he took his eyes off Christ. He took his eyes off his Savior. He took his eyes off the one who promised him 
that he gives him the ability to do this. And he looked at his surroundings, and he, he got scared. But what did he say that saved him? Lord, save me. He just cried out, Lord, save me. And that's true for, for any of us. In any situation, when we cry out, Lord, save me, God grabs us, and he takes hold of us, and he pulls us into the boat. That is the, that's the nature. That is what saving faith is. Saying, I have nothing to offer you, Lord. I'm dying. I'm about to, I'm about to drown in this water. Come save me. And so as I close, God's asking each one of us a question this morning. And the question's simple. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Do you fear me? And will you fear me so much that you'll walk in faith and the fear of this world will be off of your shoulders and you will be free to have courageous faith like Jonathan, to take these kind of risks, to sacrifice yourself for God, to encourage his people because Christ did that for you. Will you do this? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We thank you for all the circumstances in our lives that you bring to us that are not easy and difficult, but are designed for us to call out to you and say, Lord, save me. I pray you would encourage us to be courageous in our faith, not because we're so great, but because you are so powerful and can do anything. Would you grant us that faith to believe, to trust? Father, we thank you so much for what you have done, are doing, and what promise to do in our lives. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. He is our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.